Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo, here for the first show of summer 2022. Kind of weird because it's in the in the 60s outside and it's very dark as I record this. But yeah, we are into summer and hopefully the weather gets nicer. It's supposed to get really hot down south and I don't know why I've gone into a weather forecast so quickly. But that is because that is not the point of this podcast. Let's start with the real point of this podcast and the biggest news of the week. And of course, that the Golden State Warriors winning the NBA title for the seventh time now and the fourth time in the last eight seasons. They dominate the Celtics in game six. I think once you got to the second quarter, even before that, you pretty much knew that this game was over, this series was over. The Warriors in there. Curry, Thompson, Green era win it on the road for the third time. The third out of their four titles in this era, they win on the road. And, of course, the other two in Cleveland. That's the other big thing, which I didn't even think about until now, is that the Warriors finally beat a team in the final in this era that was not Cleveland and was not a LeBron-led team, which, you know, you could say, you know, this was a, a less impressive team to defeat because, you know, you have a a a once-in-a-generation player in LeBron for Cleveland, but then again, the Celtics, I would say, compared to the last one, maybe two Cavs teams, were probably a deeper team. So, and yes, I I know younger, for sure, Jason Tatum, only in his fifth season being the number one guy on that team, but... Really an impressive victory for the Warriors, and their age did not did not did not make a difference physically. It made more of a difference mentally. Stephen Curry finally wins NBA Finals MVP and makes a, a case to be a top ten player in the history of the game. He is. I think you could argue the most transformational player in the game's history, the way he has turned this league into a, a primarily three-point shooting league, for better or worse. You know, they, 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 he has his imitators, and, he's, it, and it's because of that that a lot of big guys now take threes. It's a three-dominated game, because even when Michael Jordan was playing, in the 90s, it was still a very defensive sport, a very defensive league. Most of the buckets still came primarily from the inside. The three had started to really take over. I, I think Larry Bird was probably the first real consistent three-point shooter in the uh, in the NBA post, uh, post-merger. And... I'd say Reggie Miller was the first guy to, I think, make that his, his, maybe his primary method of scoring, but Stephen Curry is the first guy to really lead a team and win a championship based on the three being the primary method. I always thought of Kobe Bryant as being a strong three-point shooter, but again, he was still, for the most part, modeled his game after Jordan, where, yeah, he could shoot the three, at times, but he, he made his living on the inside, and the and the mid range jumper was 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 big for him. He's good on the drive, but Stephen Curry finally makes his mark after Andre Iguodala wins the first MVP, Kevin Durant with the next two after having to bring him in. But then people also forget that Stephen Curry was probably still, you know, we go into that talk about the bus driver who is who is the bus driver of this team. The truth is, Stephen Curry has been the bus driver for all four teams, I would argue. But he's had a very good core around him. I think Kevin Durant was the closer. I don't know if I mentioned this on the last podcast, last couple of podcasts. I think Kevin Durant was the closer for those two title teams in the middle in 2017 and 2018. He was a guy who put them over the top after having won after they had won 73 games and come within a win of beating Cleveland again in the final in 2016. Kevin Durant's the reason the Warriors swept the Cavs one year, beat them in five 
in the other. I, I can't remember which, I can't remember the order, if it was in five the first year, four the second, or vice versa. But Kevin Durant's the reason they only lost one game in the finals in 2017 and 2018 combined. Stephen Curry is still the reason, the biggest reason why they won the series. Again, it's a team effort. You know, you can't win based on one player. But Stephen Curry was, I, I still would still argue, the bus driver in those series. I think Kevin Durant matched up better with LeBron at both ends of the floor. So, you know, it was, again, rather specific. But Stephen Curry was the driving force and has been the driving force force for all four teams. All right. Clay Thompson wins months after his return and played again he, he's not what he once was but played quite well in the finals 17 points per game in the NBA finals this year played quite well all things considered uh, Draymond Green after just a torrent of abuse from the Boston fans and not even not even family friendly Finishes with a double-double in Game 6. Kind of eschews the crowd. He played it off to his credit. I, I will say, look, Draymond Green is obviously a somewhat controversial figure in this league, especially when you know I go back to the the kick of Steven Adams in the groin. That's, that's what I always go back to. But he's had his run-ins with James Harden, a number of other guys. But he is ultimately a great defender, a huge piece of this Warriors dynasty, a very important player, and undoubtedly a future Hall of Famer. A guy who can kind of transform the center position into kind of a smaller center, play, and you know, he can play forward. He is, I mean, in some ways, kind of like a smaller Tim Duncan. He, Tim, look, Tim Duncan was the bus driver again as we keep going into that term, but Draymond Green is uh, is kind of like that. He kind of has that style of play where he can, he can rotate positions, especially with the Warriors starting with a smaller lineup. And, you know, to his credit, Green, Green really played off the crowd, gave them credit for getting in his head, saying that's, that's a, you know, that's pretty much just part of it, that it was all really in good fun, that he drives him more. And ultimately, he it did. He played very well in this series. But I I also did rather agree with him that, you know, it was, it was rather unfortunate that they had to put the profanity in there when you consider his children were in the building. And I did not realize how young his children actually are. So that was, that was rather disappointing. And we, and, and he meant he mentioned there was a perhaps a racial aspect to it, which I don't look. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but again, Boston. We've all, we've you know I I think I've definitely spoken about this before that Boston sports fans, not in general, but some Boston sports fans have had a tenuous uh, relationship with you know African American players. You know we go back to. The whole thing with Adam Jones and I, I believe with PK Subban, and it's it's just unfortunate. So I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Not to say that that's necessarily even it, but to to stand up to all of that and to play so well is a, a testament to Draymond Green's playmaking, his athleticism, and just his you know his mental capacity. Joe Lacob and Peter Guber, who I did not realize are both Boston natives, become only the second ownership group to win an NBA championship as the road team in Boston. The other being the LA Lakers back in the 1980s under Jerry Buss. Only the second time the Celtics have lost an NBA Finals on their home floor. An incredible, incredible statistic, uh, akin to the Montreal Canadiens, I believe, having only lost once in their history in the Stanley Cup Final on home ice. That I know for sure 
1989 Stanley Cup Final, the Calgary Flames and Lanny McDonald winning for the first time. But it's it, it's insane that something like that is real because even if you think of you know, the Yankees are the most success, have the most championships out of any North American pro sports team, I could tell you a number of times where they've lost at home in the World Series and where I think even the most recent time they lost in the World Series, going back to 03 with the Marlins, you go back to 81 with the Dodgers. As a matter of fact, the last few to, uh, the last at least three times they've won the world, they've lost the World Series have been at home. So Yankee Stadium was is a great home field, both the old one and the new one, but not an impenetrable fortress or at least a nearly impenetrable fortress that Boston Garden and now TD Garden have been as Montreal Forum and in some ways now the Bell Center have been. So that's that's really something for Boston to hold up for that long. And it's also something for the Warriors to be able to win it in that building, not just on home court. It's almost more impressive. It's it's almost cooler in some ways if you're a Warriors fan because you know there's a one in two chance you're going to if you win a championship there's a one in two chance you're going to win it on your home court, but to win it in a building that obviously has stood up for its home team so much is really something impressive. And the Warriors took two out of three in Boston in this series and won three straight after coming back from down 2-1 to win this one. Steve Kerr wins his ninth NBA title in total, five as a player with the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, and now four as the head coach of the Warriors. Now, I've said before that I think Mark Jackson does not get the credit he deserves for what he did to help mold that team. And then he was laid off pretty much right before the Warriors really came into their own, before he could see the fruits of his labor, or at least at least be on the bench for the fruits of his labor. He's seen it as a broadcaster. But Steve Kerr, to his credit, has continued to mold this team and remold this team as you know his guys have gotten older. We talk about Curry, Green, and Thompson. These are guys who are getting older. Steph Curry's 34 now. It was he was able to balance the lineup when Durant came in, when when Durant left, when Jordan Poole came in. He he was able to kind of figure out the minutes and Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have been very accommodating. And, and understanding, and yeah, he, he's done overall really just a fine job to the point where he will be in the Hall of Fame as a head coach at some point in Springfield, Mass. He'll be in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. So another really great job for him, especially for this team after a having not been in the finals for three years. Going through a pandemic, Clay Thompson's injury, Steph Curry being injured at times, Draymond Green being injured, James Wiseman. Imagine if James Wiseman was even playing in this series. that It might have been more lopsided, and the Warriors might have had an even easier run to the final. But he is, despite not playing, I don't believe at all this year, is ultimately an NBA champion. And if it's with Wiseman out, that... You know, he didn't take his position, but Andrew Wiggins really emerged in this series to the point where I was thinking for a moment that if the Warriors were to win, he might win finals MVP. He was phenomenal in uh, games four and five in particular. Excellent defender. It's a guy who finally came into his own and figured things out uh, on both ends of the floor. He's been able to be a great secondary scorer for the Warriors. He, he's even taken over at time, even took over at times in this series, but really did a great job defensively. This was a low-scoring. This was a fairly low-scoring series, and this was a low-scoring postseason, which I really enjoyed. It was not, for the most part, or, or at least at times, not really over-officiated, which I think the NBA tends to be these days. 
which is rather, at least in terms of fouls, I think it's under-officiated in terms of travels, but it's, I really enjoyed this postseason in many ways for how defensive it was, and Andrew Wiggins was the epitome of that for Golden State in these finals. Did a great job with, I think he, you know, had, had sometimes he had Tatum, sometimes he had Brown, he, he was able to switch off, but Tatum was quiet at times in this series, and the Warriors really did a phenomenal job defensively. That that's another thing that goes rather underrated, rather unnoticed within that dynasty is that the Warriors are an excellent defensive team. It's not just you know we're not just going to shoot the three point shoot not just shooting three pointers the whole time. It's not just Stephen Curry knocking down shots from forty feet outside. Time and time again, no people forget that Clay Thompson is an all-world defender. Draymond Green is an excellent defender. That Andrew Wiggins has really emerged. It's a sound defensive team. Even Stephen Curry at times in this series did a strong job on the back end. It's just you know the di- the difference is size with him. It's it's you know I mean it's pretty easy to post up Steph Curry. You know it, it's some guys are just bigger. And it, it's not really much that Curry can even really work on. But this was a great job by the Warriors defensively. They break a tie with the Chicago Bulls. Funny enough, Steve Kerr helping break that tie with the Bulls for the third most titles in NBA history. The Lakers now with 17 finals, uh, 17 titles. The Boston Celtics having won the NBA finals 17 times. And now the Warriors with seven are third in league history because everybody thinks of Celtics and Lakers at the top and you know heaven knows that it would take a, probably a long long time within reason before the warriors were to reach that level of success historically but when everybody thinks of the Celtics and Lakers first being third is actually a very very big accomplishment when you jump ahead of the Bulls, you're a couple titles ahead of the Spurs now, and really just another fantastic achievement for an organization that continues to thrive and is never satisfied. Now, there is the argument of, you know, now Stephen Curry, is he a top 10 player of all time? A lot of people are saying yes. I tend to maybe keep him on the outside a little bit. I don't know. It's it's difficult. At the very least, he's a top 14 player in the history of the league. And I still think he's probably second among point guards. He, he's undoubtedly the best shooting, best shooter in the history of the game, best shooting point guard by, uh, by default then. But the way he's transformed the game into... You know, the point guard is not just a facilitator. The point guard is not just there to pass. The point guard can be a number one guy and can be a number one scoring threat. The, you know, the point guard, I mean, a team's primary means of success offensively can be the three-pointer. He can defy logic with so many of his shots. He's an outstanding ball handler, which, again, takes a back seat to his shooting ability, but he is just an all-around outstanding offensive player. He dri- he drives to the basket. He can take contact, and especially for someone his size, that's that's impressive. He is, forget perhaps, I think he is the most transformational player the game has seen. He's the most revolutionary player in the history of the NBA. I don't think that necessarily means he's the best. I don't think that necessarily means... He's the best at his position because I still I still lean toward Magic Johnson. Again, Magic Johnson won the NBA's MVP five times, won finals MVP, MVP five times. I, yes, I know he played alongside Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who is probably one of the few players I could put above Magic Johnson, if that. But I, Magic was another revolutionary player in this game. And again, I mean, his time was also, his time in the league was also cut short. So there's something there as well. Came into this league a little younger than a lot of guys did. 
won five titles, went to went head to head with Larry Bird a number of times, number of occasions, and Magic Johnson is kind of like Babe Ruth in a way, where now I, I think Babe Ruth's the best player in the history of baseball, and I think Michael Jordan's the best in the NBA, but Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, that whole Lakers-Celtics rivalry, helped not only keep the NBA afloat, but push it into a new level, into a new level of cultural relevance, not only within sports, but within pop culture and society in general. What that rivalry did in the 1980s really put the NBA on a map in a place where it had never been before, and it just keeps, it just continues to rise. In many ways, some have argued that they saved the NBA. And so, you know, regardless of the accomplishments of some guys, you could say, well, we might not be here if not for them. And I think Magic Johnson is one of those guys. Ultimately, he was, I would say, a co-bus driver, kind of, but a bus driver nonetheless. So that that's why I still have Steph Curry playing second. Also, I think Magic Johnson was probably a more complete player. Well, at least going toward both ends of the floor. Not necessarily long-range shooting ability. Steph Curry has obviously stretched the floor more so with his shooting and with his passing as well. But that's why I lean toward Magic Johnson. But I will say Stephen Curry is... At the very least, the top 14 player in the history of the league. He is probably a top... You could probably even say he's... I, I could argue he's better than Kevin Durant. You could probably say he is... You know, actually, when... Considering LeBron entered this league six years before he did, I would say Steph Curry is actually the best player of his generation. I think they're in separate generations, and he's, you know a top three or four, maybe, player of the 21st century, when you consider what Kobe and Shaq have done. And on top of that, even though I I do make the argument that Wilt Chamberlain is the second best, second best player of all time, I think, considering how, especially how his career was spread out, Wilt Chamberlain, people forget, still ultimately, despite winning two championships, never won a championship with the Warriors. He played 14 total seasons. He played about five and a half with the Warriors. Never won a championship with them, despite racking up crazy stats. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now. I did not realize that Wilt Chamberlain led the league in scoring yeah, seven consecutive seasons to start his career, including over 50 points a game in 1961-62. But Wilt Chamberlain, again, never won a championship with the Warriors. That had a lot to do with Bill Russell on a very deep Celtics team, but he never won a championship with the Philadelphia or San Francisco Warriors. He won one with the Sixers, and he won one with the Lakers near the end of his career. And that is why I don't think there's any doubt that Stephen Curry is the greatest player in the history of the Golden State Warriors. Now, people in this era probably think that's a given anyway, but that's not necessarily true because a lot of people kind of don't realize the importance of Wilt Chamberlain. But nonetheless, Stephen Curry has left his mark on this game, and he still has he still has time. 34, I mean, if, if LeBron James has proven us anything, it's that 34 is not that young. I could be wrong. I want to say LeBron would have been 35 when he won his title with the Lakers. If LeBron came in the league in 03 out of high school, LeBron would have been either 34 or 35 when he won his title with the Lakers in 2020. So this team, again... They're aging, but they're not going away that soon. And neither is Stephen Curry. I, you know, just 
looking at him, though, looking at his emotion after winning that title, though, I, I don't think we've ever seen him that emotional when winning any of the previous three. And I think because he knows how important it is for his legacy, knowing that he absolutely was the guy, that is a, a source of pride for him. I would also say it's rather interesting that uh, you see him with not only his wife, with Aisha, but also with uh, his parents, uh, with Dell and Sonia Curry, who uh, had actually uh, divorced last uh, late last summer. I think I think less than a year ago, they were either divorced or at least in the or at least starting the process of getting divorced. And so you know, I mean, subconsciously, maybe that's another thing for. Steph, but it was nice to see both of them on the floor with him. And I just find it rather interesting, though, that the Warriors, it's been a transformational year for them, having won a title after coming out of a pandemic, getting Klay Thompson back from injury after two and a half years, getting, I mean, Draymond Green was suffering from an injury, Jordan Poole gets inserted into the lineup, I mean, for, for Steph and with his parents, Andrew Wiggins finally starts to emerge. This was a unique title for Golden State where so much was going against them. So much was going against them, and yet they persevered, and they are world champions for the seventh time in their history, the fourth time in the last eight years and an incredible, incredible achievement. We move on to the other finals, the Stanley Cup final. Currently, through three games as I record this, game four tonight at Amelie Arena in Tampa, Florida. Colorado Avalanche leading the Tampa Bay Lightning two games to one. The Avalanche winning game one by a score of four to three in overtime on a goal by Valerian Nachushkin. And then recording what I believe Mark Messier said, something to the extent of uh, the most dominant performance he'd ever seen in a single game in the Stanley Cup Final. That was, I think, the gist of that statement from what I can remember. And that is really something for a guy who has won the Stanley Cup six times, twice as a captain, and a guy who has won the Stanley Cup with Wayne Gretzky, Yari Curry, Glenn Anderson, Grant Fuhrer, Paul Coffey, Kevin Lowe, Essa Tikkanen, uh, Brian Leach, Jeff Bukaboom, Mike Richter. I was thinking more of Edmonton, but then you also have another uh, Adam Graves, a number of iconic, uh, Sergei Zubov, a number of iconic guys with the Rangers as well. And so for that guy, who I'd argue is a top five player in the history of the sport, to be able to make that statement is something something historic, truly, when the Avalanche dominated the Lightning 7 to nothing in Game 2. And even then, they were still only up two games to none. They weren't up six games to none. They were up two games to none. And so Tampa bounced right back in Game 3 with a 6-2 to two win. Despite being outshot in that game, 39-33, to 33, they pounced on Darcy Kemper, and then later Pavel Fransos. Andre Vasilevsky was, as it was argued by some of the people on ESPN, was the best player in this game for Tampa Bay when he made 31 saves on 33 shots and some really high-quality chances. He stopped JT Comfer with the right toe. And by the way, I'd have to specify... What I'm even discussing, he stopped Comfort with the right toe on two separate backhanders, was, made two phenomenal saves. At least one of those shots was definitely going in the net. And these were also, at least one of them was much earlier on in the game when, when the outcome was still in doubt. 
If the Lightning lose this game, they're down three games to none with Colorado with the opportunity to sweep. But now, ultimately, this series will, at the very least, go back to Denver for a Game 5. So the, the Lightning, still it's still pretty much a must-win game tonight, though, for the Lightning. Not as important as Game 3, but still crucial. Uh, Vasilevsky, in addition, by the way, did not allow a goal at even strength in this game. Both goals for Colorado came on the power play, both of them coming from their captain, Gabe Landeskog, who just uh, an absolute laser on the second goal, by the way, to cut the lead to 3-2, but then Tampa scored three unanswered to finish it off. They scored four goals in the second period, six different goal scorers in this game, after trailing one nothing, by the way. I think it was P.K. Subban who had mentioned this, and I was thinking the same thing. This game, albeit much more one-sided, was rather similar to Game 3 against the Rangers in the conference final, where the Rangers had won the first two games at the Garden, the first game in commanding fashion, 6-2. to two. They held on for a 3-2 win in Game 2, and then the Lightning come back from down 2-0 to the Rangers in the second period, score twice to even up the game, and then Andre Palat scores with under a minute to play to win it 3-2. In this game, Colorado struck first, even after having a goal, and I believe rightfully so, taken off the board in the first period. I thought they were going to take that, I thought they were going to make that call a lot more quickly, as a matter of fact, as Byron played the puck outside the zone. But ultimately, it was called offside. Avs have a goal taken off the board. But even then, they still score. And that was a point where I thought back to the Lightning Panthers series and Game 4 of that series, where the Panthers had just been frustrated and pretty much you're just thinking, okay, we've got to take at least one if you're Florida. It was scoreless for so long. The Lightning were being heavily outshot. The Lightning eventually do score despite being heavily outshot. Take a lead. They have that goal taken off the board because the puck went out of play. Then they score again to go up 1-0. They have that one taken off the board because of a play in the faceoff dot where it was a clear hand pass. And then they still score the first goal. This time it's, it's not taken off the board. Florida is unable to pounce. And I was thinking after Colorado scored that first goal, even though they only had one taken off the board, but by, by first goal, I mean the actual first goal, where they actually went up one nothing and it was not taken off the board. But after Colorado had, or Tampa had won that challenge, and then Colorado had scored, I was kind of thinking, oh boy, the Avs might just try to put this one away tonight. But the Lightning prevailed. Anthony Sorelli drives wide, goes toward the goal, cuts along the goal line, and I don't think whatsoever this was intended. I, I certainly think he lost the puck. It just came off his stick. But Darcy Kemper was fooled because this was pretty similar to Nikita Kucherov's playbook where he just kind of lets the puck go. Looks like he's going to play it on the backhand, but lets it just roll through Kemper five-hole. And it's an even game. 1-1, they just dominate the rest of the way. Pat Maroon with a goal, Stamkos with a goal, Palat with a goal. A 6-2 victory, and of course it got chippy at the end. It's always going to get chippy when, when Pat Maroon's involved, but you know, there was the fight with uh, O'Connor and Colton. Colton, who has been very physical in this postseason, we saw some of that during the Rangers series where he was starting to get into people's heads. But uh, what a night for the Tampa Bay Lightning to stay alive. Nikita Kucherov is uncertain for Game 4. It appeared to be a lower body injury. Uh, Braden Point did not play in Game 3. And so, what I find funny is that signs really indicate that might actually be a good thing for the Lightning. Because even though Braden Point was undoubtedly the Tampa Bay's best forward during each of their last two Stanley Cup playoff runs, uh, despite not winning the Conn Smythe either, either time. 
Braden Point has been out when the Lightning have been playing at their best in this postseason. He, I think, left in Game 7 against the Maple Leafs. They win that one up in Toronto. They sweep the Panthers without him playing a single minute. They come back from down two games to none to win four straight to beat the Rangers without him playing a single shift. He comes back for Game 1 against Colorado. They lose. He's there for Game 2 against the Avs. They get blown out 7 to nothing. He's not there for Game 3, and they win by a score of 6-2. to two. So perhaps it's just that idea where you play better without your star because you know you're, you really need to step it up. You don't have that safety valve. Uh, the Avs, dom- ha- again, had dominated Game 2 by a score of 7-0. Um, I found it very interesting that John Cooper kept Andre Vasilevsky in the game. Ray Ferraro had said, I disagreed with this point, but Ray Ferraro had said, I will be surprised if Brian Elliott is not in in the third period uh, for game two. He said this during the second. But he kept him in the game. John Cooper kept Andre Vasilevsky in this entire game, a 7-0 loss on the road, just like he did. And again, this game was not as lopsided. It was a 4-2 Ranger lead after the second, but he kept Vasilevsky in for the entire Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Final at Madison Square Garden, a game the Lightning lost 6-2. And I think that Cooper did that to keep Vasilevsky on his toes, to, to keep him unsatisfied, to remind him, even after winning the Stanley Cup in consecutive years, there's still something for which to play, to, just to, to keep that mindset of, of so badly wanting to win after just underperforming. And it wasn't even necessarily his fault. The Avs and, and the Rangers before that had just totally outplayed the Lightning in those games. But ultimately, it was vice versa in Game 3, and Vasilevsky did make some high-quality stops. Now, I understand that there is some... Concern as to whether Kemper or Francois will play in Game 4. I don't even know why this is an argument, because Kemper did not face a lot of shots in Games 1 and 2. However, he gave up three goals combined in those first two games on 39 shots. I will say the Maroon goal was pretty bad in Game 3, but a lot of that I think was just the Avs playing poorly and the Lightning riding their home crowd. Francois, I don't think Francois really made a case in this game anyway to become the starter again. He was not perfect in this game, was not the reason they lost, nor was Kemper necessarily, but I don't think he really, I don't think his performance really stood out. Biggest changes to be made for Colorado in this game, they need to defend the high slot, which was the site of every Lightning goal in Game 3. There was the Perry goal. He pounces in the crease and and is able to bury one on the backhand as it got behind. I think it was, I think it was Francois that got behind. The goal by Stamkos right out in front. The goal by uh, Palat, which I, I believe was, was right out in front. The goal by Sorelli driving along the goal line from the left wing right out in front. Goal after goal after goal all coming from the high slot and near the crease. So that's their biggest issue. Colorado maybe having one defenseman back in this game. Tampa Bay also dominated on the draw, winning 58% of faceoffs, and they blocked 27 shots compared to Colorado's 12 in this game. So that is another crucial aspect. Moving on from the finals themselves to some of the off-season uh, discussion, the NHL awards were held on Tuesday night, which was rather interesting. Usually it's in Las Vegas, and usually, I believe, it's after the season's over. So it was kind of strange, but these awards were held in Tampa, somewhere in Tampa, on Tuesday night. Kale McCarr and Victor Hedman, Julian Breezewa, a number of people involved and playing in or managing, coaching, etc. during the finals were there, which is, again, kind of awkward. But, you know, before we get to that, actually the couple of off-season things, 
First off is that the Flyers hired John Tortorella, 14th in NHL history with 673 wins, helped lead the Tampa Bay Lightning to a Stanley Cup title in 2004, helped lead the New York Rangers to the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012, coached with them for five years, I believe, had sort of a lackluster outing in his time with Vancouver, but then was able to take Columbus to the playoffs where they upset the, the Lightning in the first round, swept them, took the Bruins six games, had their greatest finish in franchise history, but ultimately things didn't work out there either. Can be a bit of a divisive figure, not always the best with the media, to say the least, but maybe the guy that the Flyers really need to turn this thing around. They have a roster that's not too bad, but despite all the money they've spent, they've gone nowhere. So I... I think John Tortorella could be the guy to try to figure things out for them. Flyers, of course, historically a hard-nosed organization, and I think John Tortorella is just perfect for that. Vegas Golden Knights trade of Evgeny Dadnov to the Montreal Canadiens for Shea Weber. I don't get this trade. I don't understand it when Dadanov is maybe not a star, but an up-and-comer for Vegas. Weber is a guy who's getting paid a lot of money. He's up there in years. And he's also injury-prone as of late. So I don't quite understand this for Vegas. The one... I don't know, there's, there's maybe two arguments I can make. One is that Weber could be a good veteran leader for them. He's a guy who has played in the Stanley Cup Final before, has a ton of experience. I, when he is healthy, he still has a hard slap shot and can work well on the power play, very physical. But again, I still rather question this. The other thing is Weber, of course, has played with Max Pacioretty. They played together for two seasons in Montreal, Weber's first two there, and Pacioretty's final two from 2016 through 2018. Pacioretty was the captain at the time, and then, of course, he was traded to Vegas prior to the 18-19 season. Uh, they reached the playoffs once in 2017 together, but seemed to be a good working relationship, so maybe there's another kind of benefit to that trade. So we'll see how that works out, figure out what's going on. Dallas Stars hire Peter DeBoer, a rather good hire, a guy who's been a smart veteran coach in this league, helped lead the New Jersey Devils to the Stanley Cup Final in 2012, led the Sharks to the Final in 2016 uh, against Pittsburgh. Both those series went six games, was fired by Vegas following this season, but didn't do a poor job there necessarily. Had taken over for uh, Gerard Gallant. And so a guy who knows the Western Conference well, Vegas and Dallas were battling for that last wild card spot. Vegas ultimately make that Dallas rather uh, decides to bring in DeBoer. And I'd say a rather smart hire, a very smart guy. On to the NHL awards themselves. The big one, of course, Austin Matthews winning the Hart Trophy for League MVP, as well as the Ted Lindsay Award as the league's most valuable player as voted by the players. Uh, Austin Matthews, somehow, somehow, the first Toronto Maple Leaf to win the Hart Trophy for League MVP since Ted Kennedy in 1955. Only a third Maple Leaf in total to win the award, the first being Babe Pratt back in 1944. He is the third American and only the second American-born player to win the Hart Trophy. Brett Hull, who was not born in the United States but considers himself American, played for the American national team, won in 1990, and Patrick Kane a native of Buffalo, won in 2016. On top of that, both of those guys were wingers. Austin Matthews 
is the first American-born center ever to win the Hart Trophy as the NHL's most valuable player. A remarkable year for him. And again, the, the other two finalists were Connor McDavid and Igor Shosturkin. But again, that shows why this is not necessarily the award for best player. It's for the award for most valuable player because Connor McDavid led the league in scoring and is ultimately a more complete player, is a better facilitator, a much better passer, and I think a smart, smarter player. But Matthews is such a sniper. He, he became the first American and the first Maple Leaf to score 60 goals in a single regular season. A remarkable achievement for him, and, you know, despite getting knocked out in the first round, this is a, a historic achievement and a drought that's even longer than the Maple Leafs' Stanley Cup drought. Some people, the more casual hockey fans, may not realize that despite having the longest Stanley Cup drought in NHL history, the Toronto Maple Leafs are actually the second most successful franchise in the history of the sport. The, Toronto Maple, the Montreal Canadiens have won the Stanley Cup 24 times. The Toronto Maple Leafs have won it 13 times. It's just that that also shows how good they actually were prior to the drought. But again, Matthews, somehow the first Leaf to win this award since 55, despite the likes of some incredible Hall of Fame players who played some, if not the bulk of their career in Toronto, including... Matt Sundin, Doug Gilmore. I'm telling you, if you go to Doug Gilmore's 93 season all around, it's 92-93 season, it's incredible. Lanny McDonald, Daryl Sittler, who is the all-time leader for points in a single game, I believe with 10. Uh, Frank Mahovlich, Andy Bathgate, George Armstrong, Dave Keon, Bob Pulford, uh, Johnny Bauer, if we're talking about goaltenders now. It's, it is something to stand out among those guys, it is very, very impressive and maybe a turning point for the Toronto Maple Leafs, even if they haven't won a playoff series since, I believe, 2004. But even if they have not won in that long, it is a, a turning point for this organization. Kale McCarr wins the Norris Trophy, finished with 86 points, second among defensemen. Roman Yossi led the league with 96 he becomes the first Avalanche player ever to win the Norris Trophy as best defenseman. Uh, Yossi, again, finished with 96 points. And, on top of that, finished as a finalist for the Ted Lindsay Award for uh, MVP as voted by the players, despite uh, Igor Shosturkin taking his spot as the Hart finalist. But, uh, again, this is a reminder that even though Yossi had 10 more points, this is a reminder that playing defense is still crucial to being a defenseman. It's not just about how many points you can score. It's nice to see that Kale McCarr, I mean, not to say Roman Yossi's not a great defensive defenseman. He is. But that Kale McCarr being able to play better at both ends of the ice. And again, points are not always the biggest indicator of on-ice performance. You have to take an eye test as well to, to see how good a guy's hockey IQ is, and just what he's doing on the ice. It's not just the result. It's also the effort, the skill, the ability. So, Kale McCarr, who is, at this point, probably the best defenseman in the NHL, rightfully wins this award. Equally deserving for the award that is presented to the best at his respective position, Igor Shosturkin wins the Vezina Trophy, becoming the sixth New York Ranger to do so. Dave Kerr back in 1940. Ed Jockman and Gilles Villemur split the trophy in 1971. John Van Beesbrook in 1986. And Henrik Lundqvist in 2012. Very good company. Uh, finished with a league-best 935 save percentage and a 2.07 goals against while compiling 36 wins and earning a spot as a Hart Trophy finalist, something even more rare for a goaltender. Last time a goaltender won the Hart Trophy, Carey Price back in 2015. 
third highest single season save percentage among goaltenders to play 50 or more games in a season. The other two, also very good company. One guy who you can make an argument, Hall of Fame, even if, even if not, he's a Conn Smythe Trophy winning goaltender and a two-time Vezina winner in Tim Thomas, a 938 save percentage in the 2010-11 season, the year he would go on to hoist the Stanley Cup and win the Conn Smythe Trophy as Stanley Cup Playoff Most Valuable Player. The other one, a guy who you could argue is at the very least on the Mount Rushmore goaltenders, Dominic Hasek, a 937 save percentage in the 98-99 season, a guy with the most Vezina wins of any goaltender, an incredibly low goals against, an incredibly low save percentage. And so for Igor Shosturkin to live up to that level in just his, I believe, third season, and really his... Technically, is second as the real starting goaltender, but 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 really the first after everything started to open up again post pandemic and things kind of got back to normal, which you know has something to do with it at least. Something very very remarkable, and this guy is like Makar, like Matthews, a big part of the future of this league, uh, carrying helping carry the Rangers. Even though the Rangers are a great offensive team. It was so important for Shesterkin at the back end to play well because they surrender so many chances. They're, they're such an aggressive team. I've made this uh, contrast between Igor Shesterkin and Henrik Lundqvist and their importance to the Rangers. because well, One, because you know these two guys obviously played for the same organization, but Shesterkin... Also, apparently, looked up to Lundqvist as his idol for many years. You may see an article that came out as I record this, I believe, today on NHL.com. Shesterkin looking up to Lundqvist, modeling him after his game. The difference between those two guys is that Lundqvist had a more had a more defensive team, but in in a different structure. But he probably had to. You know, he, he didn't necessarily have a better team at any given time. A better defensive team, never a better offensive team than the one Shesterkin has now. Has now. So Lundqvist, I would say, got more... Uh, Lundqvist, I would say, was a little more supported by his defense, but he also got less goal support. The, the number of chances he faced, or maybe the quality of chances he faced might be different. So... They're two outstanding goaltenders, just in two very different senses. But Henrik Lundqvist, I again, like Dominic Hasek, I would mark in at, at least a, a top four goaltender of all time on that Mount Rushmore. And you know, Shesterkin just three years in to win this trophy that early is is something very rare, and it's a sign of things to come. Moritz Sider of the Detroit Red Wings, wins the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year, finished the year with 50 points, had a negative plus-minus. However, led rookies this year with 43 assists for a struggling Detroit Red Wings team that is looking to climb out of the basement out of a few years, after a few years of big struggles and transition with Steve Eiserman now in the front office looking a lot better, with Dylan Larkin starting to emerge even more, finding a better supporting cast, with Sider, Lucas Raymond, I, I might argue, should have been a finalist for the Calder Trophy this year, but Sider able to knock off two outstanding competitors for this award in Trevor Zegras, and Michael Bunting. So, Sider, again with Raymond, with Larkin, starting to bring a bright future to Detroit. Um, and one, one of the nicer things I would like to bring up, one of the more emotional things from this ceremony, was uh, Calgary Assistant General Manager Chris Snow uh, being pre- uh, presenting the Norris Trophy, along with his family, I had not known this story, but Chris Snow, three years ago, 
was diagnosed with ALS and was given one year to live. That is right. I said three years ago he was given a year to live. And I think to... For, for that disease to affect someone with such a high status obviously reminds us that this is not a discriminatory disease where it's not just going to affect people of a you know a, a lower wage or, or a person of a different social status it would affect any person theoretically of any race, religion, creed, color, sexual orientation, etc., etc. And it's something that really does, that really could affect anyone. So, I mean, even if you know, you're an assistant general manager for a National Hockey League team, and you, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you are, you know, the richest person in the world, it's a disease that continues to just randomly attack people across this earth. It was also, I think, very moving to see and very realistic, and maybe it's incredibly realistic to see how the disease has affected Snow in particular, where he had to use his hand just to, to move his mouth in order to speak. It's, it's taken a lot of the movement out of his face and, and part of his body, it's a disease that hurts, that, that takes over rather quickly and, and perhaps for no real reason. So it's just a powerful reminder to please be aware of your own fortune, keep an eye on others, and to, if you can, somehow raise awareness of ALS, the one, well, one of the diseases that it's amazing how much progress we still have to make uh, regarding it moving on to US Open England's let's talk about that for a little bit England's Matthew Fitzpatrick wins the US Open at 6 below par after Will Zalatoris I mean but by what maybe 2 inches missed the potential playoff forcing putt I didn't watch a lot of uh, of this tournament. I watched a little bit of the last day, and I caught Fitzpatrick. I, Fitzpatrick with a one-stroke lead going into that final hole. Most impressive thing is him getting out of that bunker on 18 from the country club in Brookline, Massachusetts, and just being able to make up the difference with uh, Zalatoris, who had a good final hole overall. Excellent shot from the... Uh, excellent shot from the fairway onto the green, that second shot, but uh, narrowly, and I mean narrowly, avoiding a playoff. Uh, narrowly uh, avoided... or narrowly missed... forcing that playoff... So Fitzpatrick, again, also Fitzpatrick, something that is rarely, rarely seen. It was, I believe, nine years ago, he said, that he won the U.S. Open amateur title at the country club in Brookline. One of, I heard there was at least one other person who had done it, but it's a very, very rare feat to do that at the same, the same club and the same course to win your first U.S. Open and win your first U.S. Open amateur title at the same club. That's not just a matter of skill. It takes a lot of destiny, almost. It, take, it takes some the will of the universe and a little bit of scheduling. But that was 
unbelievable. The, the reaction from his family just being behind Zalatoris and just having to kind of hold in that that excitement for just a second as Zalatoris finished finished up on 18. Uh, what an, an incredible, incredible sight and incredible event. And it's, it's even more impressive that Fitzpatrick could win the U.S. Open amateur and win the U.S. Open and do it at the same country club and uh, do it as a non-American to do it at the U.S. Open. Not to, uh, obviously, there are ton, a ton of incredible English golfers or non-American golfers. For goodness sakes, the game was not created here. We know that for sure. But uh, something very, very impressive to win that on American soil. And uh, one more thing regarding golf, Brooks Kepka will also lead the PGA Tour for the the Live Golf Tour. I spoke about this last week. There's a lot of controversy around it because of specific, well, because of the money and because of you know there's there's less probably less uh, or fewer tournaments. But also because of it being funded by the Saudi government, which has, or the Saudi government's public investment fund, and the Saudi, Saudi government has been allegedly tied to a number of human rights violations, and also including being alleged to have funded the September 11th terrorist attacks. Again, alleged, but I'm so I. Uh, real shame, I think, for to see another fine golfer like Kepka leave, especially when you know that it's a lot about money. When Kepka is willing to leave for this new tour, when Bryson DeChambeau has already left, and we know the rivalry between those two, and not a friendly rivalry either. So I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Rob Gronkowski retired. Again, let's see if it lasts. Apparently, the statement was uh, from his agent essentially was, you know, don't rule out a retirement. He may come back if you know if Tom Brady will only come back if Tom Brady calls. And then Tom Brady tweeted just a picture with a guy with a phone up to his head, just staring at the camera, which I thought was hilarious. So yeah, don't, I would not necessarily expect this to last. Again, as we did a couple of years ago, Rob Gronkowski, probably the best tight end of his generation. Well, it also depends on the generation because you, know, you consider, is he part of the same generation with Travis Kelsey? And they, they can kind of go either way. But undoubtedly the most important skill player or, or the most important uh, receiver back, etc., the most important player, most important teammate to the best quarterback in the history of the National Football League, Rob Gronkowski, the uh, a four-time Super Bowl champion, one of the, probably at least the top five tight end all time, and uh, at the very least top ten, undoubtedly a future Hall of Famer, one of the great family guy cameos of all time. And an incredible postseason performer, and just uh, just all around incredible athlete. So I, if, but I again, I would not be surprised if this doesn't last very long. So we'll keep an eye out. Yankees. This is one last thing here that just a, a minor thing. The Yankees reacquire Albert Abreu off waivers from the Kansas City Royals. The bullpen for the Yankees has really struggled in the last week. There was Clay Holmes blowing the save. The Yankees did win that game, but Clay Holmes blowing the save when Garrett Cole's no-hitter was broken up. And, and then, of course, Wandy Peralta, among others, blowing that matinee loss on Sunday in Toronto. Yankees with a couple of big leads, and uh, with an 8-3 lead in that game, lost it by a score of 10-9. And then people also forget the Yankees have... Araldis Chapman on the IL. You have Zach Britton. Everybody forgets about Zach Britton because he hasn't played at all this year. 
on IL, and he's also deal, dealt with injuries the last couple of years. And then you have Chad Green on IL, and he is uh, done for the year with that elbow trouble. So, but then again, the Yankees are still, I think as I record this, I believe, down up still 50-18 and 18 and still on pace to perhaps break the major league record for wins in a single regular season. But a long, long way to go as we finish up here on the first week, or the first week of summer, the last week of June. Actually, we're going to have one more show in June, unless, some, unless, something, unless something wild happens. But the first show of summer comes to a close. We thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your time. And hope to see you or hear you, or really you'll hear us again next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.